welcome to the Forster's Modern Law Podcast. I'm Mary Stickland, a knowledge development lawyer in the commercial real estate team, and I'm joined today by Andrew Parker, a partner in our construction team, and Dan Cudlip, an associate also from our construction team. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you today. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. Andrew and Dan have joined me today to talk about the um, difficult topic of external cladding on high-rise buildings, and I suppose both technically difficult, but also obviously incredibly emotive following the tragic loss of life in the Grenfell disaster. But it's it's understandably it's been a topic of much discussion, both in the specialist construction press and obviously in the wider sort of general press. So going back to basics, Andrew, can you just talk us through what is an external and wool made up of and what what was on Grenfell? Yeah, so uh, a question I never thought I'd be able to answer, but uh, like you say, quite a topical um, subject at the moment. So an external wall, you can think of it really in three sort of um, parts. There's the rain screen cladding on the outside, uh, which is a system which is designed, as it might sound, to prevent rain attacking the main structure of the building uh, and including wind as well and that's what's been in sharp focus um, at the moment particularly with Grenfell because it's been the the, the rain screen cladding in question has been uh, ACM panels and we'll come back to exactly what those are in a second but behind the ACM panels you have a, a cavity which is ventilated and within that you have horizontal cavity barriers which are intended to stop the fire spreading vertically up the building and compartmentalize it and then behind that you have um, uh, insulation which sits against the structure of the building. Now the ACM panels themselves are aluminium sheets sandwiching a composite material in the middle, uh, plastic effectively. And what it's been found is the problem with that is that as it heats up the aluminium uh, debonds or moves away from the plastic and it exposes it to the fire and that it turns out is very combustible indeed. And that was one of the big problems with the Grenfell fire. As it happens, Grenfell had those um, ACM panels on them, uh, but it also had failed or defective cavity barriers in the in the cavity behind, um, which meant that the fire spread up vertically through the building like a chimney, had a chimney effect. And to compound those two problems, there was also insulation, which was highly combustible and has been likened to, I think it's lighter fuel or petrol, or it's a, it's a highly combustible material. Mm. So that's basically what you would find on a typical um, building, and that's what was on Grenfell. I, mean, I would say that there are other types of external wall cladding systems. Yeah, so there, there, some, some of the uh, exterior panels in use are made of a material called high-pressure laminate. Uh, which and there are also concerns about the combustibility of that material and its suitability for use as a as a cladding material. But as Andrew said, the the material on Grenfell was a, an ACM, and a lot of the focus has been on ACMs, um, and that's what we're focusing on in 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 this discussion. So that combustible cladding was within the ambit of what was permitted by the building's regulations, but there has been a recent change. So can you just talk us through what the regulatory change? has meant in practice. Yeah, I'll try and do it and try and keep everyone awake while I'm doing it. (laughs) Um, So the building regulations, the main bit to focus on is that under the building regulations, it hasn't changed. There's regulation seven, which said if you're doing building work, which we'll probably come on to that definition later on because it's quite quite an unusual definition and it's quite relevant to where the regulations have moved to. But if you're doing building work, which is effectively the erection or um, extension of a building, regulation seven as it was, 
said that that work must be carried out with adequate and proper materials which are appropriate in the circumstances. That's a sort of paraphrase of it, pretty much. That still remains, but what they've done now is that they've introduced a second limb to that, and they have banned combustible materials in 7.2 for buildings that have a story above 18 metres in height and okay. that are private residential, hospital, student accommodation. So that's the big change. And Grenfell actually fell foul of the regulations uh, as they currently were. Those materials shouldn't have been regarded as adequate in all the circumstances. So it's not been a change to try to address that, but it's just been a change now to address what seemed to be endemic in the industry about putting combustible materials on the buildings. Yeah. But the, the other thing to mention that's changed is that um, prior to the changes, uh, the way that you were able to uh, demonstrate compliance was either by um, including materials which were of limited combustibility or non-combustible, um, or you could include um, materials which were combustible but passed a test, a British Standard 8414 test, which I now know and love. Um, <laughs> the, uh, that system now doesn't apply for residential uh, hospital student accommodation, for the, those buildings that are now caught by it. Um, but it so that you can't use that test to um, show compliance with the regulations okay. for those buildings. What you, but it does still, because hotels and offices don't fall within the new regulations, you can still use that testing regime. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the big change, that, that it's been removed from those residential things now. So. I would add that um, there are some exceptions uh, provided for in the, in the um, amendment to a rig. 7 some materials still can be of um, or some materials don't have to be non-combustible and that includes things like um, the membrane um, and sealants and a few other uh, listed items that I think it was deemed would be impractical or Im- impossible to have um, those materials as non-combustible okay um, but yeah it's a limited list yeah mm. and so when did the regulations take effect Dan? so the um the the changes came into force on the 21st of december 2018 however there was a transition period so if uh, full plans for quote building works had been submitted to the local authority or the initial or final notice had been given by the local authority uh, and the building works defined again, to which those uh, plans and the notice applied had been started by the 21st of February 2019, then the regulations won't bite. Um, Right. However, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that perhaps uh, developers had decided to comply and tried to change their designs. Yeah. Even if they had started before the 21st of February, so that their their building suddenly didn't comply with a competitor, or or comply whereas a competitor's building started a couple of months later, may have yeah. complied. Yeah, there's quite a bit of focus on making your building safe from a fire perspective these days, isn't it? We're seeing quite a bit of yeah um, people taking a slightly more cautious approach. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to be the ones that take a technical point uh, on people's safety. Yeah. So, Dan, Andrew's been talking about the regulations, and will they apply to existing buildings which have combustible cladding 
and are completed. So the changes made by the building amendment regulations themselves, that alone wouldn't require any remedial action to be taken. What the trigger will be, and has been for uh, remedial works to be carried out, is the fact that the, the buildings in question didn't comply with the building regulations as they stood before the change. So when they were built or when um, they were extended or, as in the case of Grenfell, when they were refurbished, those changes failed to comply with the regulations um, as they stood at the time. Whether Regulation 7.2 applies will be dictated by whether there has been there is building work, that's a defined term, uh, being carried out. And then there are similar provisions in Regulation 6.3, which that also prohibits the use of combustible materials in a similar fashion to Regulation 7.2, but Regulation 6.3 applies to changes of use. Okay. So there's sort, there's sort of two, um, two routes that will trigger the highest standard, I'll call that the highest standard, required by the building regulations. Uh, so if you're, if, for example, on the change of use, if you're changing a property from a hotel to a private residential block, you will have to replace any materials that are combustible in the, in the external or construction, um, except for the accepted materials. Some materials are accepted. And then the more tricky aspect or, or category is when uh, quote, building works uh, are being carried out. So building works are defined by Regulation 3.1, and there are, there are seven categories of building work, but I will cover the main ones. So there is, there is obviously the erection or the extension of a building. That's, that's clear-cut. But the, the tricky category is, quote, material alteration, and it is drafted to, um, to prevent building owners worsening their properties. It doesn't require the improvement of a, of a, of a building, but it, it is drafted to prevent the building's condition being worsened. So where your building does not already comply, an alteration will be material if the works result in it being left in a more unsatisfactory condition. So if you already have a non-compliant building, you won't be carrying out, quote, building works if what you do leaves them non-compliant but doesn't make it any worse, does it make it any more a non-compliant? So those of you that listen to that thinking that sounds completely confusing and a total <laughs> contradiction. I can put myself in that category. <laughs> yeah, I was reading your face there. Um, I think it is a strange rule. I mean, effectively, in trying to determine whether work uh, it complies with the regulations, you look at a definition which categorises work uh, that has as its result a product which still doesn't comply with the regulations. It doesn't seem to make any kind of sense. It seems to be obviously contra- contradictory and a complete anomaly. So where that's going to quite go and, and how that's going to be, how those two things are going to be rationalised is going to be an interesting development, I think. But um, as I say, those of you that were scratching their heads and not understanding that, you're not alone and it doesn't get better reading it five, six, seven or eight <laughs> times later. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and the peculiarity is repeated in the, in the provision that applies to an existing building that is already compliant. So when you have a compliant building, an alteration will be material if the works would result in the building no longer complying. So again, it's a, a strange definition. Kind of makes more sense to me, because yeah. if you are compliant and you're worsening that, then obviously you could take you can take steps, but, yes. but it's this this sliding step scale of being non-compliant and sort of very non-compliant. Yeah. That and doing work that still leaves the building non-compliant, but comes within the regulations. Yeah. Very odd. Yeah. So who knows how that's going to be played mm. out? But yeah, that's I think what it says. The, the the rationale, as I understand it, was that um, if the regulations required 
or when carrying out works required that developer to improve the property so that they they comply or, or improve a non-compliant property so that it complied with the building regulations that burden may discourage developers from taking on existing buildings that were non-compliant and and and, and renovating them mm. um, but i think that the the risks of being left with a non-compliant building especially in the light of, of Grenfell, now outweigh this the desire to incentivise developers. So actually, in practice, are we seeing people, notwithstanding that there's no direct obligation under the regulations, are, are people taking a kind of, I suppose, responsible approach? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, ballsy approach if you look at your building and decide not to take steps when you have the opportunity to do it. Yeah. So I think anecdotally and, and the general feeling in the industry is that there's a, there's a huge heightened sensitivity about fire-related issues. And if people have got the chance to make their buildings safe, then, uh, then they're doing that as you'd expect them to. Yeah. And so going back to the kind of limitation on the regulations, we talked about them applying just to residential buildings, so flats, hospitals, care homes and student accommodation and obviously with the high rise so over 18 metres do you sort of anticipate that we're going to see similar regulations for um, commercial premises because obviously there's no application there to for example hotels or offices where people might spend a lot of their daily lives as well. I think the it's been an interesting one because the government not long introduced this legislation uh, the consultation was in October and it came into force in December 2018 so they didn't take the opportunity then to bring in offices and hotels when they could have done so you would think that maybe the rationale for not doing it then still applies now which I think as I understand it is that the evacuation systems in those buildings are quite different to private residential accommodation hospitals and what have you Uh, and there's a perceived lower risk in those commercial buildings and so whilst that still prevails then I guess the regulations will stay as they are. When Grenfell is through and finished who knows quite what the findings will be and what the climate will be and, and what the, the you know the perceived wisdom will be and it yeah. may be then that it comes in as a change. So Dan how many buildings are there which have this kind of combustible cladding that we've been talking about? Is is the problem very widespread? I would say that it, that it, it is still quite a significant issue um, across uh, England, certainly, uh, there is um, a lot of interesting information um, collated by the Building Safety Programme, which is a government body which is tracking this, um, and they obtain their information from the building research establishment, from local authorities, uh, from stakeholders in buildings, and um, from the Valuation Office Agency. And they collate all this data and they're releasing monthly statistics um, on progress. So, uh, as of the 31st of August 2019, 111 high-rise and publicly owned properties uh, had completed the remedial works um, and that includes um, hotels, uh, student accommodation as well, uh, even though sort of hotels aren't caught by the uh, amendment to the regulations. However, that leaves in England uh, 324 buildings uh, that are over 18 metres or with a story over 18 metres with cladding systems that contain ACM cladding panels and are unlikely to meet the building regulations. Interestingly, there's over 20 such properties in Greenwich, there's over 20 in Tower Hamlets, and there's over 20 in Salford. This, this sector with the highest number still um, incomplete 
with uh, with works not started is the private sector residential where there are still 144 properties out of a total of 181 where works haven't started to rectify the offending uh, cladding. So have local authorities been more sort of um, yeah, so the on the ball about much more. So the social social sector residential uh, sixty of one hundred and fifty eight properties have been completed, which amounts to nearly forty percent. Whereas when compared to the private sector residential, only seven percent have been completed, um, and there are still twenty two buildings in the private sector residential uh, category where there is no clear remediation plan in place. There are 81 properties in the social uh, sector where works have started, whereas that's compared to just 24 in the um, private resi sector. And so who's bearing the cost of replacement of the cladding? Has the government made funding available both, I suppose, on the local authority and on the private sector side? Yeah, they have. Uh, they've, they've made a commitment to fund all the social housing replacement cladding works. And for the private sector, they've said that there's 200 million available. The general feeling is that that isn't enough, um, but there is a fund there of that amount. And quite how it operates yet, I don't think um, we know really. Um, What they have said is that they require anyone making an application to take reasonable steps to pursue those responsible for the defective cladding in the first place. Right. As a sort of condition to uh, doing it. And quite how far you have to go uh, it remains to be seen and what criteria they're going to use and how much they divvy up uh, project by project. Is, we're not sure yet. But there, there is that which is which is welcome relief to some, uh, some building owners who've been hit with this. Yeah. But it does point to the fact that those that were ultimately responsible for designing and building the building in the first place are going to have to answer those questions and deal with those deal with those claims which probably means that their PI insurers are going to have to because most of these are design issues some of them are workmanship issues for in relation to cavity barriers and what have you some of them are not fixed properly but most of them are design issues and and we're already seeing that uh, having an impact on the PI insurance market with uh, it's it hardening really so premiums going up um, insurers fighting claims a little bit more than they, they ever have done in the past, even for claims that are completely unrelated to Grenfell. So right. uh, the bottom line is going to be that those people are going to be responsible for it, I think. But uh, there's there are interim funding measures that the government and is putting in place. I mean, on insurance, there's, there's also possibly latent defects buildings insurance. Um, so obviously these are residential buildings for the most part. So uh, NHBC and the like is in theory in play. And NHBC have come out, I think it was 11 schemes, something like that, that they have committed to funding the replacement of cladding. And so how far back would that go in terms of the years that have elapsed between the cladding being installed and now? How, how long would the protection under the NHBC last? The protection under the NHBC uh, lasts from uh, 10 years from completion which is slightly shorter than uh, the normal limitation period, uh, which is 12 years from completion. The the 12 years would come under your building contract or perhaps your development agreement. Your your right to claim lasts for 12 years from the date of completion. So, Dan, how can you establish whether the cladding on your building is combustible? So, the... um, The main way to do this uh, is to to instruct a a fire engineer or, or a cladding expert to come and survey your property 
Although I would say that in the private resi sector, there are only four properties that have yet to confirm the the status or the the, yeah, the position on their cladding systems. Okay. Um, that's according to the building safety program again. But if if a property owner is concerned, you know whether or not the building is over has a story of eighteen meters, uh, they may be wanting to meet that high standard or, or just to double check. So yeah, you would instruct a, a surveyor. They would come and um, probably open up the building and um, look at the materials that have been used and try and ascertain what materials have been used on the ground and then refer to the manufacturer's information. They may also, if they can access it, look at employer's requirements um, from the building contract, any operation and maintenance manuals, any as-built uh, documentary information and try and ascertain what materials have been used and then they can form an opinion on whether the building is, is compliant and or safe. Um, so you mentioned the Grenfell inquiry sort of a couple of times. So what is the position, what's the latest position in respect of that? And where do you kind of, if you were future gazing a bit, where do you sort of think that we're going to go from here? Yeah, well, it's tricky. I mean, it's it's in two phases, the Grenfell inquiry. The first one's about, the first phase is about to come to an end. Well, it's ended and the, the write-up is coming in October um, and that was really dealing with um, the the development of the fire itself, how it started, how it spread, and events in the sort of hours in the aftermath. Phase two will be looking at how um, the building was in that state in the first place, so that it was such a fire risk and uh, all the factors that, that created that. Yeah. And that hasn't started yet, and that that's going to be um, a very interesting phase um, of the inquiry. And as I say, I, I think it's likely to be another two years before we, we have... A report on that um, as we go along it's on the, on the public website as to uh, how the inquiry is developing but in terms of hard and fast conclusions coming out of the inquiry that's not for another couple of years and until we've got those conclusions it's a bit difficult to know really what the ultimate reaction of the industry is going to be um, and the in the in the interim what we can see is that people in this uncertain world are just taking uh, the more cautious approach yeah if, if they've got choices um, you've got to balance against that, that they're very expensive construction projects. So uh, there's caution, but uh, you know there is a commercial context to consider as well for everybody. Yeah. I think what it's going to mean for construction projects is that, that, that start now or ongoing, that they're going to be much more closely monitored on site so that um, uh, people can say with greater certainty precisely what's been installed and what's gone into particularly the external wall makeup. So who would be monitoring it? Somebody on the project team or somebody externally? Well, in the old days, there used to be a clerk of works and JCT still provides for a clerk of works, but uh, they've uh, gone out of fashion and you may find that they come back. And they're an independent, uh, privately paid consultant, effectively, that, that has a much greater presence on site than a contract administrator or an employee's agent or, okay. or anybody like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if, uh, certainly in these immediate years, um, that you see somebody specific's role is to just make sure that fire safety regulations are being met. Yeah. Um, and what that'll do to the projects will be will be interesting, really. I think that um, a clerk of the works would be is a, a very important consultant to employ because some of the problems, namely the lack of fire barriers is a, is a workmanship issue mm. uh, that is it's easy to um, to either deliberately omit them or to, to have them installed correctly and then they quickly get covered up mm. um, and, and that's that's then, then beyond ex- inspection but that's exactly the sort of thing that a clerk of works would be hot on yeah. and I think and, and, it's the, and it's the sort of thing 
that can only be picked up by a, a clerk of the works type um, consultant. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think those are the kinds of things that they'll be invaluable for, really. Uh, whether it means that projects take a bit longer or they're a bit more expensive because you've got to get your clerk of works round to inspect before you can do the next stage of the job, I don't know. But it probably just means that projects will need to be planned a bit more carefully. Yeah. You need to build that in. It can't be beyond a bit of man to just include that. So, um, so that's a little bit of a sort of prediction as to what might happen, I suppose. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot about Regulation 72. <laughs> and stayed awake in the <laughs> <laughs> Without the aid of any caffeine. Yeah. Um, so for the latest news and views from the firm, please do head over to our website, forsters.co.uk, or check out our various social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And for more More Than Law podcasts, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And until next time, goodbye. Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. <laughs>